0: And when you're working with talent or a big enough brand where someone is watching your every move, you have to find your safe zone within that new offering or that nascent space or that new industry. When he finally did decide to get in, it was because we looked at our marketing calendar and we knew that there was this huge moment where Stefan was going to break the three-point record for the league.
1: welcome to another edition of the columbia university sports podcast it's a cusp show we talk about the business of sports media disruption uh let's see what else can we talk about talent cause and commerce which we're gonna cause and commerce i love Uh, it so i'm joe favorito along with my co-host tom richardson tom another unique discussion we are going to have today
2: yeah no good to be back for another show and um it's a great time of the year for sports fans we got. NBA playoffs in full swing, got NHL playoffs. Got some interesting stuff going on in golf this weekend. Um so no, it's it's all good, Joe, and the uh, on the academic front, we are now at that funny part of the spring where it's like, holy shilly, how did this semester go so fast? Right, Columbia graduation is in a few weeks, so we're wrapping up the semester and it's a reminder how quickly time passes, but we will continue what have you been up to this week what have you been working on or following a lot of interesting stories that have popped up
1: well i lost my blue check mark as i up. noticed that in fact so,
2: i i so. i took a, I don't, I took I don't know a what picture of myself i took so. a picture of chris niari's account without yeah. the blue check mark yeah. and i sent it to him and i said how's life without the blue check mark yeah. so let me ask you joe how is life without that
1: it's had a really profound effect on my life so <laughs> um and, I thought uh, maybe you were
2: important enough with it, in the sports business, especially well, for, for Elon he, to treat you like he's treating LeBron right now. Right. He bought, he bought LeBron.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it. LeBron needed the eight bucks a month to really kind of make that work. That was really important. But it was, it was interesting yesterday in the world of Elon Musk. He had a, a rocket takeoff that subsequently exploded and they called it a tremendous success. Yeah. And then uh, he decided to purge all the blue check marks from some people, but not everyone. So I don't know whether some will be coming back or others will be disappearing. Um, but anyway, life goes on. Um, but, wait, but Joe, I got to
2: ask, you you know, you, you're big on Twitter and you've been doing it a long time and you had that blue mark for a long time. Are you tempted? I spent the money.
1: You did? I did a while ago. Yeah. And they still lost my blue check marks. So I texted them yesterday. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. But the interesting thing, um, I saw Mark Burns, I talked to Mark Burns from Morning Consult this week and he's like he noticed the same thing that i've talked to a lot of people about is twitter is playing games with the with the the algorithm because he's like i he, i would get he told me that he got an average of i don't even know 1.5 million impressions every month for as long as he's been on twitter the last two months it's gone down to like 220,000 how yeah. could that be so, well, you've
2: heard a lot of people say that I've noticed it even yeah. in, in a small way with my, with my attention. stuff,
1: which is, you know, I'm, I'm
2: yeah. not tweeting as much as you, but it's weird. It's kind of a weird vibe. Like you, you feel like something's going on. But um, in my opinion, not having a blue check mark is the new status symbol on social media. So I'm going to go, go with that. I, I've never had honestly, one. <laughs> I didn't even notice it until, until last night. But anyway,
1: let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah, let's move on. Um, so today we're going to we have a, a great guest. Uh, recently exiting out of working with pretty prominent group or athlete on a lot of the non-basketball stuff. Um, and we are going to talk about something I mentioned before, the intersection of talent, cause, and commerce, where she spent most of her career. Um, and she's still advising a lot of people uh, on how these pieces all fit together. So Hilary Awad, welcome to The Cusp Show.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that within the first few sentences, I found out we're allowed to cuss on this show because Tom dropped a four letter word.
2: Yeah. yeah. But you know, I was going to edit myself, but yeah, it's podcasting yeah. Hillary. you I <laughs> do what you want to do. It's not, we're not and you're to stealing
0: TV. my lines. You just gave the <laughs> title. of But the now, podcast but now, now the fun
1: stuff. part is
0: That's you're going to explain
1: it. So <laughs> yeah, See, Hillary- well, you're,
2: exactly. It's easy to say these yeah. sayings, but people have to actually back them up. So we'll get to that in a second, but uh, Hillary, welcome to the show.
0: Thank it's you. great to have you. Nice to see I, you. I think,
2: you know, we're doing this on behalf of the Columbia Sports Management Program, where we've got a, a lot of young graduate students who are starting or developing their careers in the sports business. And one thing we love to hear from our guests, is kind of the career story in a somewhat abbreviated fashion. So we want to focus on what you're working on now and and, and your, your career, but uh, in terms of um, the issues and trends of the day. But if you can tell everybody a little bit about how you ended up getting in this business. That would be terrific.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, the one thing about my career, I think, is that I've taken a lot of unorthodox moves, and that's not to pat myself on the back, but I think we just put so much pressure on even ourselves today. I still feel this a little bit in my 40s that the next move has to clearly have a linear path from A to B, and we'll achieve you know, the four following things, and we can check some very obvious boxes. Um, mine career path even starting out of college has not been so obvious and then in a beautiful way working for Stefan was the first place first time really in my career that I saw everything come together where literally every tool I had sharpened and earned and learned in my toolkit um was put into action which was really really gratifying um I think a lot of people unfortunately have to wait a lot longer in their career and I was really fortunate that that opportunity really fell in my lap and. Um, I really mean it when I say I used every single muscle in my professional, um, arsenal. So I was a twin. I started out, I always say like, I had a team member my whole life. And, um, my mom got breast cancer when I was nine and started the race for the QR in Baltimore, Maryland, which, you know, Cohen foundation was still very significant and people in breast cancer circles, they, you know, they were always the leading, um, nonprofit in the space, but, um, my mom, took my sister and I up and down 83 and 95 on the East coast, looking at Philadelphia and DC and really, um, doing some recon about how she would bring the re- race with the cure to Baltimore. And it wasn't really until I wrote my, um, business school essays in my late twenties that I realized, I think that's where my passion for what's really possible through sports started. Um, and I, I, watched my mom basically take a diagnosis of breast cancer and turn that into a platform and an opportunity to do something for a lot of people. She then went around Baltimore and all the private and public schools educating kids in lower, middle and upper schools about breast cancer. Um, and so very quickly I thought like, oh, there's a business here in sports. And I remember in, you know, my my college and my high school internships were at Fila and, you know, companies around the area um, that were working in sports. So I knew I wanted to work in sports, but um, came out of Georgetown where I played team sports. Um, and that's why I reference having had a twin. I feel like team sports, I was born for that. It was in my DNA obviously. Um, and I came out of Georgetown, went to work for Susan O'Malley at the Washington wizards who Joe knows well. Um, mm-hmm. she was really ahead of her time. Um, at the time, I believe I've never fact-checked this, but I believe that she was the only female you know, president of any professional sports franchise. Um, and that was, this is in 2003. So I graduated from Georgetown in 2003. I played lacrosse and field hockey there. Um, and so I went to work in game ops and marketing, had an amazing experience there um, and was invited by the beauty director at Harper's Bazaar Magazine, where I had been an intern one summer in college to come work for her really in an unorthodox role, basically as her assistant. And I ended up um, helping her write a book and doing all sorts of um unconventional things i would say she was writing the book for the beauty expert from the TV show queer eye for the straight guy the original show hmm. not the one that people are used to now um but this was back in the day reality television was really only a thing because of real world and road rules um and a little bit on food network but you know Rachel Ray and Emeril Lagasse and um unscripted television as we know it today did not exist i know that's very hard for a lot of your students and other young people to understand, but Bravo, you guys will remember, um, inside the actor studio, that's sure. the only reason anyone knew Bravo. Um, and now, you know, Andy Cohen was like, a, I think he was an assistant to the president when I was working on this show, working on this book with the guy from Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the beauty expert, um, and then the beauty director at Harper's Bazaar who was ghostwriting it for him. Um, and I met his manager, which led to my then becoming his personal assistant and working um in that was really my on ramp to the talent business for 10 years. Um I had exposure to everything. I sat with him. He was then the first ever male spokesperson of a female beauty line at L'Oreal. Um and so I was, you know, on the sets with him and Andy McDowell doing their commercials back in the day. This is like the mid 2000, you know, 2005, 2007. Um and so I that took me into talent representation and I was a young hustler out there doing talent representation for 10 years. Um, Basically business development. We shared clients with CAA and IMG and UTA and all the big talent agencies, but I was basically doing short and long-term strategy, whereas, you know, their agencies are selling. Um, So we did a lot of licensing deals, book deals, um, tons of TV deals in fitness, fashion, health, interior design, beauty. um, And I really wanted to get back into sports. Um, But at that point, you didn't have a lot of unscripted television managers doing sports. And I had a couple and, um, just knew I wanted to get back into sports. I liked that. It was so much more objective. I represented, um, for a short time a speed skater and she had won the bronze medal. Um, and I remember pitching Adidas who was a client because I helped launch Adidas's yoga collection back in 2006. And, um, I pitched her the speed skater and she was like, Hillary, if I was going to sign a speed skater, I would sign the gold medalist, which at the time was, you know, the only name anyone knew was Apollo Antonono, and um, not the bronze medal winner. And that really stuck with me. I was like, okay, the objectivity about sports is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so I moved from there. Um, I actually decided that it was finally time to go to business school. So I'd been in talent representation for 10 years in LA moved from New York to LA to start our unscripted office inside a scripted talent agency or a talent management firm and decided it was time to go to business school. And I knew that would be my sort of pivot point to get back into sports. Um, and I had stayed in touch with many of the sports people that I w- had worked with early in my career at the Wizards. But interestingly, um, Octagon, for example, was one of the talent agencies that not only has a huge sports practice, but had started Octagon first call, which I know Joe knows well. Um, David Schwab, Schwab, yeah, Michael Jacobson. You know, I like came up in the business with Michael Jacobson, and they were buying a lot of my lifestyle talent. And so, it's just funny how those things all come full circle. You know, that's Stefan's agent. You know, his wonderful basketball agent for On Court, um, and for many years they were doing his off-court marketing as well. You know, the people at Octagon are incredible, and Phil DePisciato and Jeff Austin, you know, have become Mm -hmm. like mentors to me in my role with Stefan. Um, and so, you know, I would have never known that at the time, but I worked with Octagon for many years in the unscripted business. And then again, you know, when I came out of business school. So anyway, so fast forward, went to business school, came out and actually ended up at a digital content company that at the time was called Whistle Sports. I think they're called something else now because they're not just doing sports and they're more of a production company. Yeah, they got they got the acquired time, too. Yeah. Yes. Acquired. Right. Um, so I was there for two, year, two plus years heading up partnerships um, and not. Advertising partnerships, but on the talent type. Um, and you know, this is again hard to imagine, but this is before Facebook had video. Um, this was before any of the content other than YouTube was monetized. Um, Instagram didn't have video, didn't have ads. You know, these are days that we can't even imagine now. But um, I was the head of partnerships there working with people like Dude Perfect and Jeremy Lin, mm-hmm. who obviously is a huge content creator, Hillary Knight, um, leagues, teams, brands, even events like um. Tough mutter and things like that, helping leverage storytelling opportunities and then mon- teaching them really how to monetize their content um, on all the platforms, especially because it was such a quickly evolving space. Um, and I ended up doing a lot of casting, casting talent for projects, um, which was fun because I got to leverage my network of athlete representation, um, which was, you know, it's all, as we all know, it's all about relationships. So, um, got to call my old friends and see if their talent wanted to participate in any of our content. Um, so I knew I wanted to get back into cause and whistle sports at first was really, you know, the idea was that we were gonna um, introduce young kids to sports, but through these digital mediums where they were learning. And since they were not attending baseball games and couldn't afford to attend NFL games. and um, But I knew I wanted to get into cause and whistle sports was, you know, going more in the direction of production of content um, and so I went over to Everfy, which um, DC folks know quite well, but um, started working and then eventually came to um, be on the leadership team with the sports entertainment practice there. Um, and it was amazing working with, again, teams, leagues, and individual athletes, but basically serving them an out of the box option. They didn't have to start their own nonprofit foundation. We would serve them um, and really be the activators for a digital learning program. It could be in financial literacy, STEM, career readiness, African-American history, social and emotional learning. Um, So whatever the cause was that athletes wanted to focus on and offer to their local schools, we had a digital solution for that and the school network to activate it. Um, And the guys who founded the business are really genius. That also has since been acquired by Blackbot. But um, again, got to really leverage my network of teams, athletes, leagues, um, and we can talk more about that later. But um, my, the best part there was actually, in the end, running one of our board members projects. So Jeff Wiener was one of our board members, um, and he, at the time, of course, was the CEO of LinkedIn. He's since now, I think, become chairman of the board. Um, but anyway, he worked on a project with him with the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association. Um, right when they were doing their gender equity, um, you know, gender or equity, pay equity lawsuit. Um, and so it was just a really beautiful synergy there between some of the nonprofit work I had been doing on the women's side in gender equity. Um, so, um, and from there, that's when this stuff opportunity fell into my lap. Um, and it really was this beautiful, like I said earlier, um, just kismet of commerce cause and really cred like how do you build street cred um and contribute to the street cred and the credibility for Stefan off court um which we'll talk about more I'm sure but yeah um there you know you don't say no to that job but really truly it was a values alignment opportunity I mean there was I took a um like seven month sabbatical if you can call it that after Whistle Sports, before I went to Everfy. And I wrote this personal manifesto. And when I looked at the Stefan, what they were at, you know, the opportunity looked like to work for Stefan, I realized that it was exactly everything I had said I wanted my career to stand for. Um, and so seven months pregnant, I started interviewing, or no, seven months pregnant, I moved out here to the Bay Area and took the job. Um, we were living in Brooklyn before that. And yeah, since then I've had two kids. And So wait, so did you,
2: did you go after that job? Did you like reach out proactively after you did the manifesto?
0: No, 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 God, no, no. After the manifesto, I, it was such a, that was such an amazing exercise. And I'm so proud of myself because I was pretty young at, to have had the clarity to write something like that. The saddest part is that I was talking to my other a friend of mine, Aaron Kane, a while years ago but post manifesto. And she asked, we were talking, I said, I should like white label that and, you know, sell that. And I looked for it and I can't find it anywhere. Um, wow. but it's probably on on some external hard drive, but, um, we, no, I did not. I went and worked for EverFi. Um, and this is just, you know, all, everything is about relationships. I think sports people use that saying more often than maybe any other industry, but maybe I'm biased. Cause I've worked in sports <laughs> the longest, but, um, no, a wonderful person named Chris Helfrich, who at the time had been working with Stefan before this is in like 2013, 2014, when he was like, you know, beginning to become a household name, more so because of the viral video that was like Chef Curry with the sauce and about Aisha and, you know, that video. Remember that one? Um, I was just a fan of his at that point, but was working at the whistle. And um, Chris Helfrich was working on the Nothing But Nets campaign and with Stefan and um came to whistle and said, well, how can you guys help me? You know, we need to use social content to get the word out about nothing but nets in this campaign. And in a, you know, it was fair, but basically our comms team who was working on anything cause related at the time, didn't really have time to do that. Um, which is fair. It's not a slight to them at all. And I was like, come over here. I have, I know all the talent I'm working with the talent we will help with, let's put together something and reach out to people you know, that we think would, you know, put a post up for you that has to do with nothing but nets and introducing this campaign. And, um, we just stayed friends. Um, I got into the gender equity space. A lot of the people, we knew a lot of the same people then at the state department that were working in sports, um, because he was in DC. And, um, so I, yeah, I was like a 12 weeks pregnant. I think I came out here to the Bay for, um, a wedding and had lunch with him in what is now the Oakland athletics office. Cause they kicked everybody out of, Um, this certain part of downtown Oakland, right on the water, these beautiful offices, but they were just renting office space there for Stefan and Aisha's foundation. That is the one thing that Stefan and Aisha do very intentionally together is run this amazing foundation um, called Eat, Learn, Play. So plug for Chris and Aisha and Stefan and the work there. But um, they, and he said, you know, I think this guy, Brian, who was heading up SE30 at the time is looking for someone um, with your background. And the honest truth is I thought, that I wouldn't, it wasn't going to be a great fit because I thought it was probably really focused on revenue. Um, but I thought, you know, we'd love to get back to California. My husband's from here. We knew eventually we would want to be back on the West coast. Um, and how do you not at least explore something having to do with Stephen Curry again, just because of the values alignment. Um, he's a Christian, I'm a Christian. I had never really had a chance to work with people that were so out, you know, outspoken about their faith. Um, And that's how it all happened. And I obviously came to happen that it wasn't entirely revenue focused and the focus on revenue was going to be because Stefan's main goal in life is impact. Um, And so he's in a fortunate position where, you know, what he does on court obviously is paying the bills. And he is so incredibly devoted and Aisha as well to making sure that their legacy is one of impact.
2: That's an amazing uh, journey, Hillary. Thank you for taking us through it yeah what what occurred to me is how your professional career has mirrored the rise the beginning of web 2 the advance of web 2 particularly yeah. social media um, and how you joked about how in the early days of social you couldn't do as much as of course we can do now right. but but just can you just comment on that how that how you kind of sussed that all out because obviously doing the work you did you had to be one step ahead of your clients and you had to do probably the hard work of figuring out what should we do on Twitter? What should we do on Insta? What do we got to do now that we've got TikTok, et cetera? And you didn't know because we were all learning it real in real time as these things got introduced. So right. just, just reflect on that a little bit and talk about how you kind of made adjustments along the way.
0: Yeah, so at the end of my career um, in the lifestyle chapter, let's call it, for those 10 years I worked for um, – this boutique management firm, first on the East Coast and then on the West Coast, I for, I thought you so there's yes web two, but also the development of talent as a brand, people mm-hmm. as brands. Mm-hmm. The first company I worked for um, in New York City, we called ourselves Talent Brand Managers, and people always thought it was a typo. So it was in the footer and you know on our door and on our business cards. And people were like, "That you, you're missing the word and. And we were like, no, no, we're building talent brands. And we represented a couple guys on Queer for the Street Guy and other people, like I mentioned, in the lifestyle space. And it, that was really the predecessor to, you know, obviously now these platforms and how people are making use of social media platforms to build their talent brand. Um, and probably we could do a whole other podcast on the difference between brand management and talent brand management when the brand itself is a person but um yeah so th- it was first that and at the end of that first 10 year chapter um representing people on you know in the lifestyle space youtube was just becoming a thing i, I laugh because it's mm. like funny to think about now it's like saying google didn't exist but um the before i went to business school i took meetings at youtube and we were literally like trying to figure out this thing we called webisodes. And I will give credit to the people I worked with then who taught me that you should own your own content. And this is like 2010 to 2012. And I was like, why do we need to own our own content? Like there's big studios, there's networks, like what what am I going to do with that? And also in fairness, I wasn't working with people like Stefan who had um, such deep pockets and the resources. I was working with, you know, Food Network, HGTV, um, a lot of Viacom talent. And they didn't, they couldn't hire. And, and also the talent then to like r- do your own webisode, you know, we all thought everything had to be premium. This idea of like low fidelity content um, wasn't as sexy then as it is now. And so it was all really expensive. And you guys remember it was really expensive to mm-hmm. produce a webisode or what we called a webisode in those days on your YouTube channel. Um, and so, yes, I sat at that, in that intersection or that like sort of pivot point and that growth moment at the end of my talent career, then went to business school. And the major aha I had was that I took a social media class and I was so bored. And in fairness to my classmates, it was because they had not done anything with any sort of social social media and they hadn't built any talent brands. But the social media for me was just a new platform to keep doing what we had been doing. And I always said in talent brand management, it was about what is the story? So someone would come sit with us. They wanted representation. Everyone said, they wanted a line at Target and to be on Dancing with the Stars. And I know I'm dating myself, but that's what they said. <laughs> and um they we got a major line at Target for one of my favorite people in the world, Sabrina Soto, who's still on HGTV. Um and people, social media was honestly like the greatest gift and tool we could have been given because then I no longer was at the mercy of the networks, right? We had mm-hmm. control over it. The problem in the beginning was just that it was so expensive to produce. And so Facebook and Instagram were just really taking off Facebook. Like I said, did not have video. And it was a place where you, it, people were just beginning to build brands on Facebook, but they hadn't really realized what was possible there. People really were devoted to YouTube. And so YouTube was giving out production budgets. They were st- starting all these little studios. So there was a group called taste that was doing food network, like talent or excuse me, like content, uh, but low episodes, you know, at scale. So it was cheaper for them. Um, and so we like had to partner with someone like that. We couldn't afford to do it ourselves. My clients couldn't afford to do it themselves. So then I went away to business school and I took this social media class and, um, I did a project for the final project of the, of the course about, um, in doing like sports tourism in Africa to go see where the best runners in the world run. Um, mostly at the time was in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. And they, um, I did this project and I handed in what I could have written as like a strategy light type of document four years prior on social media and like how to work with influencers and talent. And I went to the teacher and I was like, I don't remember exactly how the conversation took place. Oh no, it was that I was actually applying for a job at Twitter. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and Laura, who's now the head of sports at Twitter at the time was like hiring for this role. This is 2014. I was about to graduate. And I said, I wrote this cover letter and it's about, you know, Twitter as, um, basically your press, a press conference and made this big sports metaphor. And it doesn't feel very, I didn't think it was special. And the professor was like, Hillary, this is an amazing cover letter. And my hope is that you even get a chance to talk to them about it. Cause you probably won't. And, um, that was when I realized that what I knew from building talent brands was going to be incredibly useful. And that was the reason that I eventually took a job with Whistle Sports. I was first talking to them um, just about doing some consulting because I knew talent and they knew content and production, but um, ended up taking the job there. And what I learned then and the, is what I practice now. Like The principles haven't changed, right? It's about this right. basically a content studio that's in your pocket. Um, so the rules of engagement really haven't changed the algorithms and the metrics, the monetization, as you guys were just talking about, those have changed, but it's really the principles of building a brand. Like, who are you? What are you trying to say? What platform are you going to use? Who are you talking to? And I would argue that sometimes right now, brands don't even know the answers to those basic questions. And you can, you know, you can look in the news from the past three months and see 60 campaigns that you know, clearly didn't know what platform they should activate the content on, who they were talking to, the message didn't break through, or it was culturally irrelevant, which is what we're seeing a lot today. Um, But the principles remain the same. And the, the opportunity at the whistle was really about helping people monetize that content. So Dude Perfect, you know, no one will ever catch up to Dude Perfect because they were a first mover and they, the algorithm worked in their favor in a way that it doesn't work in people's favor anymore and hasn't because the platform is so crowded and because they've changed the algorithm so many times. But, um, you know, that was really fun watching people, watching Dude Perfect basically become professional athletes who were a bunch of guys making videos and saying, dude, that was perfect. That's funny. (laughs) But making Um, millions.
1: Hillary, talk a little bit about the evolution of the Steph Curry off the court persona brand. And more importantly, when you talk about companies, how how do you align or how, when you, you, with your time there with Steph and with Aisha, how was how it working together to line up the right brands at the right time and figuring out the right execution?
0: Well, one thing I should, I want to make clear because I don't want to take any credit away from Aisha and her incredible team is that I did not represent mm-hmm. Aisha. I only worked with Stephan. Yep. Yep. Most of their business, um, and this may have changed in the past few months since I left, but most of their businesses are entirely separate. Um, and Aisha is an incredible, incredible person, but she's got a wonderful team, Tiffany Williams, Danielle Iturbe, these people. Um, Funny about um, relationships. So I worked for 10 years in this very boutique management firm. And when I started working in exploring this job for Stefan, I found out that the person who was now running all all of Aisha's business at the time was this amazing woman named Danielle Iturbe, who was a lawyer by training, but had come to work with me at Entertainment, the company I worked with at the time. And we we were a two-man band representing all this lifestyle talent. And then, you know, what are the odds of us then representing Stefan and Naisha Curry? So that was a very full circle moment for me. And she's still there um, and they do amazing work. But um, so you ask about how we figure out who are the right partners for Stefan. Is that really? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, like I said, about, you know, building a brand. You know, my privilege really in working with Stefan was to look at You know, he's on court right now and everyone sees him two or three nights a week, you know, for his 82 games a season on television, doing press conferences, constantly talking about basketball. But, you know, it wasn't I wasn't the one who invented this notion that he had a lot more to say. I mean, he was certainly already doing that before I arrived. Um, And I started working for him in late 2019. Um, But we really were starting to think about, you know, what is Stefan's end of his career and post. Career post playing legacy going to look like and like I said before he he wanted everything and still wants everything to be about impact and so my job really was to come in and try to um, like codify if you will put into code what his brand stood for Um, and he and the Warriors and Tiffany Williams and um, you know the team at the Warriors are in charge of what that looks like on court and how that. Extends to off court. My job was to make sure that when we had opportunities that were solely about off court or were an extension of what he was doing on court, we knew what those opportunities, like what we should be saying yes to. We needed to establish some rigor and decision making opportunity decision making frameworks around what we would say yes and no to, and more importantly, why. So just like building every brand, um, you know, my the first thing I did when I came on board was establish it was more than a brand architecture. I won't go. So it was, it was a brand strategy, you know, strategy is this sexy word, but it's really just, how do you get from A to B, right? You could have a strategy for anything and it's just a plan. And then you work that plan. And so for Stefan, it was, um, starting with the why, and, um, you know, that is, you know, trademarked information, but the, the, the big goal, the North star that we had on every board above all our desks was about impact and changing the game for the next person to come along. And, um, mm-hmm. that was what I had put in my personal manifesto. So really to have the opportunity to use the platform, the size of Stefan Curry's to find this intersection of commerce and cause, you know, we had brands coming to us and a lot of people would come and I'd say, well, why do you want to work with us? And why, you know, why is Stefan the right person for this campaign? And a lot of people would say, oh, well, he's really nice, the brand thinks he's really safe, he's got a huge social media following. And we would say, well, you know, these are the things we're focused on and why don't you come back to us when you have time to think about a more specific and unique alignment between your brand and Stefan? Um, Because we obviously were saying no to most things. Um, We couldn't say yes to nearly, you know, the majority of things we had to say no to just given his availability off court. Um, And so my job and my colleague's job was really to figure out, you know, who is he? What were our brand pillars? What were the territories in which we wanted to work and activate those brand pillars? um, Come up with some creative strategies within those spaces. So if one of them was going to be, you know, that we wanted to be working in technology and, you know, working um, around, like, exploring new spaces, which were, you know, new industries, we wanted to unlock new markets, and maybe increased presence in priority markets, um, expanding Stefan's brand into new markets. Well, what would that look like? You know, that was when we were considering what we would do in the NFT space. I knew we could say yes, if we figured out what the right thing was, because it it tethered back to what we had said was one of our core strategies, which was exploring new spaces. And those were like commercial strategic entry points for us. So we had brand objectives, I came up with brand objectives and then strategic entry points for the commercial opportunities with that would match back to those brand objectives. And then we came up with um, some creative strategies about how we would activate in those spaces. We came up with community strategic entry points. um, Like I said, because everything was going to always tether back to, you know, commerce and community or commerce and cause. Um, And so if somebody didn't map back to those, to one of our key pillars or a core objective Um, we weren't going to work with them and I won't give examples about who we wouldn't work with, but anyone who came and was talking about, you know, anything having to do with disparities between eat, learn, or play was certainly an obvious front runner for a further conversation. That didn't mean we definitely worked with them, but there was clearly a synergy and it would be, there could be an opportunity to go deep in some early conversations to see if there was really meat on the bone there. Um, and I think just like building every any brand, it's really about establishing a backbone and a rigor around what you do and don't, what you can and cannot pursue because you can't be everything to all people. Um, and even in the cause department, but co- the the same metaphor will, would apply in commerce or in something that was you know on the face, more commercial, say a brand partnership. Um, in the cause category in San Francisco, I mean, we have so many issues here right so gun violence um homelessness are are probably the top two that come to mind but stefan's foundation and he as a person is very focused on you know disparity in food insecurity in equalities in education so that's learn and then play and disparities in access to sport um and then outside of that gender equity and certainly now um some racial equity um focuses that he's having. But if somebody wasn't clearly, you know, I would get calls all day long around really, really amazing nonprofits. And we just couldn't say yes to them. And Eat, Learn, Play clearly couldn't work with them if they weren't aligned to Eat, Learn, and Play. So then they would sometimes come over to me to see if there was anything we could do. And these people are brilliant doing incredible work, but we couldn't say yes to them because it didn't match back to, you know, our framework that we had developed. And I think that's really important is just knowing who you are.
2: Mm-hmm. Laurie, can I ask you, go back for a minute to the point you made about the difference between brand management and talent management. And what's interesting is as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about how for brands, the attributes to the years are essentially made up by the marketing people of the brands. They're f- fictional, essentially. They create a story and this goes back to the beginning of marketing in the United States, you know, just with soap operas and things like that just this idea that you can decide you can make a product and you can build a story around it any kind of story you want, but it's basically fictional. Yeah. The difference with talent is you're talking about living breathing human beings that have personalities that have values that have principles that have beliefs that in certain cases can be quite strong. So. How does this work for the individuals? and I'm sure you've met so many along the way, especially you know, in the years where you're doing broad management in that agency, where you where you come up with someone where you just the, the individual kind of a tough person to market based on human characteristics of uh, human human weaknesses that everybody has in different forms because you you get a sense with certain athletes that they're kind of forcing the issue on some of the things that maybe, the individuals not as bought in as his representatives might want you to believe is that a fair read of things
0: um yes but i would say someone's doing something wrong in that case i mean i guess that, that person still deserves a platform they deserve a chance to like show up mm-hmm. at the table for sure no no but doubt about that but but you, you can't
2: you can't really change a person's right. personality that's my point yeah so
0: that person is the hardest to market, right? If you've got like the bad boy, bad boy, that person is a heck of a lot easier to market because you know what you're going to get. The person who's unpredictable and may or may not show up in spirit, in maybe they're hungover for every meeting. Maybe sometimes they don't show up or they're late or they show up and they're just clearly not, they're just disengaged. That person is impossible. And luckily for me, and this is probably why, not probably, this is why I never worked at larger talent agencies where Everything you're living and dying by commission. I mean, I know stories of people who literally keep a calculator in the old days on the corner of their desk and all day long, they're just calculating their commission. And unfortunately, and there was an article about this back in like the early 2000s, um, the people who don't meet their commission numbers, those heads roll, right? And so that's why I never, I, I used to always, I shared a lot of clients with people at big agencies who didn't see what I saw in my talent, but I never represented jerks. And it was very apparent that those people didn't have a lot invested in maybe a client or two of mine because they had bigger talent. And that was why I worked at a smaller agency because I could really focus on them. And I never wanted to be that person. We always used to say, Danielle actually, and I used to, and my, our other colleagues used to always say, if your client comes to town and you don't want to have dinner with them, you know, you shouldn't be representing them. Like You should think that they are so cool and you want to get the most recent tidbits for that next meeting or that next pitch from sitting face-to-face in Katsuya or wherever the hot restaurant of the moment was in LA at the time, hearing from the horse's mouth, you know, their funny isms. Because my job the next day in the meeting or on the pitch or on the phone or, you know, at drinks was to be talking about why that person should be the face of the next line at Target. And you know that the mile, the line is a mile long for people who want that gig. Um, And so the person in the middle who is either unpredictable or just blah, just kind of vanilla is very, very hard to market. And I was fortunate and it was a little bit by purpose of only ever taking on talent who um, had an edge either way there. They just may not have had the platform yet. And my job was to find the platforms to tell their stories. And that's what I always used to say, whether it was a TV deal, host on the red carpet, a book deal, where can we tell this person's story? Because I would sign them if I felt like they had a story that was worth hearing. The interesting thing, like a good case study to actually answer your question is um, Cardi B at Reebok, for example, Um, you know, you think of like Andre Agassi or John McEnroe or like now Nick Kyrgios, you know, these bad boys, Um, but bad boys were sort of that bad, you know, Cardi B persona. I don't have a title for her, but she's sort of a bad girl, I guess, you know, punk rockers, they're outsiders in their own right. They've got an incredible amount of lifestyle cred. So I could market them all day long. You lean into that, right? Um, and that's good marketing. You lean into what that cultural tension is. Mm-hmm. Um, you you spin it. You, you pivot on that cultural tension. So the game may hate these bad boys, Dennis Rodman, for example, in basketball, but they can't deny their influence. Um, and... I think the interesting part about those people and why brands, or at least people in television, especially reality television, but nowadays you know press conferences and social media, can't turn away from them, is that you never kind of you never know what you're going to get. So yeah. it's like watching a train wreck. Um, you can't fight against them, so you have to find partners that want that bad of personality, which is what Reebok did with Cardi B. Mm-hmm. She was dropping f bombs and was a stripper, and that became part of what they did together. And to their credit, you know, say what you want about that, but. I don't know many other brands who were signing her at the time. I wasn't studying her brand portfolio, so I might be wrong, but, um, there's like an interesting case study there. Stefan is of course on the entire other end of the spectrum, but what's really fun about Stefan. And we had a conversation about this in our planning meeting back in 21, um, with someone like Stefan, who is so wholesome and he's so funny and he's so witty. And that was one of the things I came to learn about him was he wasn't just a nice guy. Like He has so much to say and you see a lot more of that now than maybe you did five plus years ago, but he's so interesting, I guess is the best word. There's just, he's so, he is so much more than just the multi-hyphenate. The guy is so dimensional. He has so much to offer um, just as a person and then a businessman and an athlete and a philanthropist and a father. He's just so interesting. Um, But because he has so much benefit of the doubt, let's say, um, you can take really fun risks. And there were some really fun ideas that we were playing with over the past three years. Um, and COVID sort of stole the opportunity to do some of those, but he can take risks and do things that are really tongue in cheek or say things that other people wouldn't get away with because they know the heart and they know where it's coming from. And he's truly just trying to be funny or, um, you know, use uh, Americans. We can't really get away with saying this, but like, take the piss out of someone. It's a very British statement. I went to school in England. So I feel like I can borrow that um he's just having fun with people um and if you're a bad boy you got to be so so careful especially now in our cancel culture mm-hmm.
1: so hillary what about
2: these scenarios where there are new opportunities in the marketplace that are not yet proven but there's an interest among your clients to get involved how do you handle those
0: i think first you have to know why you're doing it and Really make sure there's consensus amongst the group, but more, most importantly, in our case, like you know, the main client, which in our, in my case, with Stephen Curry, with Stephen, um, that you are in it and you all know why you're doing it, right? Like I said, so an example there is probably the crypto space right now with um, NFTs, and that's such a nascent space, highly unregulated. There's a lot of funny business going on there. And some of the people that got involved in launching their NFTs um, before we did were doing things that we saw that really made us want to sit on the sidelines for a while. And we did for months and months and months, most of 2021. We took calls from everyone, um, trying to, frankly, do some information gathering. We were very forthcoming. Um, Jeff Boston from Octagon was on a lot of those calls with me, I think every single one of them, um, trying to put our heads together, right? If you're in a space where you know you don't know the most and you're not the expert, <laughs> have someone with you um put two heads together but we would get off those calls and then like compare notes and come to what we think you know the recommendation should be or and for most of them it was just like E needs more information um and we couldn't move forward and when you're working with talent or a big enough brand where someone is watching your every move you have to i guess not necessarily play it safe, but find your safe zone within that Mm -hmm. new offering or that nascent space or that new industry. And so in this case, um, we said, no, 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 because nothing was compelling enough or frankly made enough sense for us in the sense that like we didn't fully understand it, but also it didn't make sense for Stefan. Why would we get into that? Was there a new business stream? No. Did we know what that was going to mean for his fans? No. Um, And so um, when he finally did decide to get in, it was because we looked at our marketing calendar at the beginning of 2021 and late 2020. And we knew that there was this huge moment where Stefan was going to break the three point record for the league. And if there were ever a moment, I remember having a conversation with him saying, if there were ever a moment to get into this space, it would be because your fans are going to want an opportunity to participate in this historic moment with you. And if we can figure out how to do that in a safe way that is very Stephen Curry and not us trying to sell a $64 million piece of artwork or, you know, um, you know, there were just these crazy headlines at that time. And this is like mid 2021. Um, if we're not trying to do that, shoot the moon, so to speak, and we can stay in a real estate within all of the unknowns that we feel relatively comfortable in, you know, do you have an appetite for that? And to Stefan's credit and the team that we were working with at the time, you know, there was really good consensus of like, okay, let's figure this out, but do it really well. And so what we knew, we knew we picked a lane. It was going to be sports memorabilia. Like I said, not a $64 million painting, not a piece of art, so to speak, sports memorabilia, because that's what his fans knew. And that's what we knew. Um, It was democratic, right? We wanted this democratic experience. That was why the NFT space was interesting. So how do we introduce that to the sports memorabilia space? And Stefan had been playing around on his own a lot to learn the space and all of us had and taking conversations with everyone we could that would help us get smart. Um, and we hired some people that were experts um, to help, but um, we really knew the why, right? Get the fans involved. And then ultimately it was not about, it couldn't look like it was going to be anything other than for uh, for other. So it was for the fans and it was for the community. The check that we would write from any earnings was going to go back to the community hundred percent. And at that time in December of 2021, no one had yet done that. I think Shaq was the next after Stefan to do that. But at the time in a very Stephen Curry fashion, he was the only person to give hundred percent of his proceeds away to the community. And, um, we knew that as we, every decision along the process to building this NFT and offering it in the marketplace was going to be a premium offering. Um, and so we sold out in about five minutes and raised over $2 million and um, gave it to Stefan and Aisha's community or to their foundation, Eat, Learn Play, to then deploy in the community. And the reason I bring up that example is because we found a safe space within a very unregulated, frankly, a little bit scary industry. Um, but we did, you know, the Stefan Curry version of. These shoot the moon things that other people were doing, and frankly, things that athletes were doing that, that had them backpedaling. I mean, I won't name names, but a couple, I think at least two athletes at that point had launched something and then fully backpedaled, which made people right. super cynical about the space. And so we figured out, um, you know, how to make this digital piece of sports memorabilia um, an offering that felt very Stephan.
1: Thank you. That was great. Hillary, one more question from me, uh, and then Tom's going to wrap it up. You talk about trying to be a little bit of a futurist when you talk about clients, especially now as you go into other things. How do you, how do you stay ahead? Where, where are the places you go for information? Um, how do you do your homework? What are you looking for? And how do you kind of set that sniff test for this is going to be real going forward or this is something that's just a phase? Mm-hmm. And we won't talk about pickleball, by the way. So there
0: you go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Don't tell us Steph is
1: is, is
2: buying a pickleball team.
0: No, no, no. (laughs) Joe is referencing at Super Bowl twice. And then in a subsequent phone conversation, he got me all riled up about what women's sports, women's soccer and pickleball, because at Super Bowl, there was a lot of conversation about pickleball. We'll just leave it at Mm -hmm. that. I actually do. The guy that we were talking to, I'm excited for him and the business he's trying to build at these sports conferences around pickleball. I think he's yeah. onto something but who did i see just um yesterday i saw somebody else just invested in a pickleball team it was a female anyway um i like pickleball but i don't know that i'm i'm not going to be investing in pickleball with my own money anytime soon um i've already forgotten the question
1: how do you stay how do you stay up to date uh, on how do you how do you help your clients or even yourself stay ahead of what what the next curve is going to be
0: i think it's relationships it's first and foremost. Um, I try to carry this practice with me in all of my life. It is okay to say, I don't know the most about X and go find the person who does. And it is incredible um, in my career, like when I've been exploring gaming or um, like Will Mao at Octagon talking to him. I used to know him back in the day when he was at YouTube. And then we were talking about rights and pricing rights and looking at the APAC market um, for something a few years ago. And I called him and I'm like, I don't know anything about this space. Can you help me? And he's an incredible expert in that space. And it's being willing to read a lot of books, listen to a lot of podcasts. Any downtime is not downtime. I'm either with my kids or trying to get smarter on something. Um, I'm not very good at just like, I hate meditating. I cannot, that silence kills me. But um, we, you know, making the most out of the people who are experts and being willing to say that you're not an expert. And I'm really good at a lot of things, but I don't have to be an expert at everything. And the only way I'm going to get better at the things I'm not so great in is you know, finding amazing people to work with. So um, I think good leaders surround themselves with people that are better, that are really good at the things that they, the leader, are not as good at. That's how you create a great team, right? You have position players. Um, so I'm okay with saying that I'm not so good at, or I'm not the expert in you know, some nascent technology. And then I'm going to go find out who is. And in the case of, you know, a huge talent like a Stefan or even a smaller, more niche talent, if you really have a conviction that you want to get into that space that you don't know that much about, um, I think as long as you come with the reason and also kind of have your hands up and admit what you don't know, experts are really willing to work with you. And honestly, I think on good brand partnerships are created that way as well, right? Each per party has to bring something to the table. Um, so there's definitely, you know, just a constant learning attitude. What's the term I use with my kids, the growth mindset, you know, I'm reading all, these things, yes. reading all these things about That's how to be right a good parent one. and like teach them about the growth mindset. That's not a fixed mindset, but, um, you know, even as adults and as experts in a lot of things, I'm okay with, it's actually really freeing, frankly, to not have to be the expert and to say, um, huh, I don't know a lot about that. I'm either going to hire someone or I'm going to hire a cons- hire someone full-time on my team. I'm going to hire a consultant or I'm going to just call someone and have a really good conversation, and that's where the relationships and the network that you've built over time is really valuable. Because three years later, you know, someone might become the expert in something, and you haven't spoken to them. But you've absolutely, especially LinkedIn with the way update. things are
2: happening right now, so fast. Yeah. But so, so that's actually Joe. Joe um, kind of asked the first part of our. We always wrap up these shows, which we'll do now, with two final questions for every guest, Uh-oh. which we think is important. So the, the first one, you you kind of address it. We ask everybody how they keep up. So I'll just, uh, and the second one is about careers, but let me start with uh, it's called part two of that last answer. So you t- talked about relationships, um, finding experts, et cetera, but what specifically are you using or that you, you can mention that you'd like to mention in terms of newsletters, podcasts, newspapers, whatever that you find most helpful right now? And this is something that hopefully will help our students as they listen to industry um, veterans and experts.
0: I mean, I would say in the world we live in right now, nothing is off limits, right? So you've got to be reading everything from like Hypebeast to stay up on like streetwear and fashion culture, because that's infiltrating every industry. And you've got to read SBJ and like New York Times and the Financial Times. I actually couldn't tell you the last time I read the FT, but I remember coming out of business school being like, I'm going to get a subscription to that because it's really important that I'm reading, you know, international financial news. I went to school in England. Um, So You really can't have tunnel vision, and that's something that's really hard, especially if you're working with more than one talent, because you have to know, you know, all the industries. Or like, if I was a talent agent and I was representing people in different sports, I've got to be reading everything now from like AAU level on up. You know, you've got to get smart in NIL if you're going to work with Mm -hmm. anyone that is younger than 22, right? Because like females or NFL players, like they have to finish college, right? So even if you think you're only going to work with pro athletes, you've got to understand the nil space now talk about an industry that's changing literally overnight i mean a billion dollars have been spent there in what almost two years and i was just talking to someone yesterday about these issues with exclusivity and conflict that like open doors and some of these platforms have they say they're not issues they are going to be issues and so we as the talent representation have to be incredibly smart about those types of things which means you have to read everything um so i am probably um Instead of telling you like these three podcasts, I'm, I try to listen to everything all the time. The other day I was listening to a tennis podcast and I actually learned a lot about it. Um, It was, you know, Naomi Osaka's agent that was really fruitful for that day. And I'm sure random pieces of that conversation will come up um, in weeks and months from now. But um, yeah, you've got to read Hypebeast and SBJ and the New York Times and Financial Times. And I even still read Women's Wear Daily because that's what I wow, used to read. Wow, that's old school. Really old school. But some <laughs> of those reporters have been around for so long. They've right. got the right relationships. Um, and then obviously social media. And I wish I could go in and reset the algorithm because I know, like for right I'm now, my you. because of what I've been doing for the past three years, my algorithm on Twitter is all basketball and all women's sports. And I kind of need to like turn it on its head and have everything start over. Um, so you can yeah, start, you so can start weird.
2: an alternative Hillary Twitter account. Like so I do else. have
0: that actually. So <laughs> I have um, and credit to my husband um, on Instagram. I started doing this before I became like years ago, he was, had started this and then I copied him. Um, and it has a name, which I won't say out loud because I'm not trying to get followers. It's truly for me to kind of incognito the, Following different accounts mm-hmm. and um, even in the political sphere, like I think you have to listen to the people that you absolutely don't agree with and you think probably would be your enemies. Mm-hmm. So I listen to crazy or watch and listen and read crazy things on social media because I think you always have to know what the other side is saying right. to have a good argument for your own side, right? And I don't, I don't want to do that on a public, on a you know Instagram handle or Twitter handle where people can see what I'm following. So I do do that.
2: Yeah, yeah no, that's a good, good thought. Okay, and number two is, um, you know, we mentioned earlier that we have a lot of students listening from the program, a fair number of people from the industry, we believe, but um, (laughs) would love to get your perspective on careers and career development, particularly thinking about individuals in their 20s who are just getting going or just starting to kind of hit their stride uh, in this business.
0: Well, I think you will never be more hireable than you are right now. Being young and so teachable, like if I see a resume of someone that's that young and has good pedigree, maybe you know worked for a few years and then is doing your grad program, or even is coming out of undergrad, but like hasn't if they can give me a strong reason for why they want to work in sports or marketing, even in general, um, they are hireable, right? because twenty year olds are incredibly teachable and they have I mean, I guess I'm just looking for humility. So as long as they know that they have everything to learn. Mm-hmm then um, you are in the best place in your career you will possibly ever be um, because you're, no offense, but you're not going to be the most expensive talent. I won't go as far as to call you inexpensive. I don't want anyone (laughs) to ever be talked about as inexpensive. But, you know, if in the climate that we're in right now, where heads are rolling at corporations, where people, you know, long thought that their own personal identity was... You know, part of the fiber of that brand, say these huge layoffs at Facebook and Google. I've had friends who've been caught up in those. You know, the newest tires are not the ones rolling if they're the youngest because they're not expensive. So, um, this is an incredible moment in time in your career right now, and I think you just need to figure out the why for what you want to do, what you want to do, and figure out how to tell someone a story that makes it personal. Um, and then, I—I I mean, the best—I I have people I have interviewed over the years. And some of the best ones were people who I didn't necessarily feel like a great person to person connection with, like they wouldn't have been someone that I would have chatted with for an hour at a cocktail party purely on like personal interests. Some of those people became the best hires because they were so incredibly good at their job, whether that was project management or things that I you know, am not as good at because I'm the overall strategist, the generalist, and I need people that are in those specific roles. And if when you're young, you're you're trainable. Like I can teach you to be an amazing project manager as long as you have a reason for why you want to be the person who's making sure all the train leaves trains leave the station at the right time, and that's what a project manager does. That's, so um, that's a
2: good way of saying it. Yeah. That, I as long as the and the other side of that coin, I would love your opinion on this. So there's the teachability, willingness to be mentored and, and helped out, and then there's kind of that natural desire. Uh, and curiosity to to be a self learner, because there's there's no and I this is something I often say to the young people I help out is if there's something you need to know if you're applying for a job at any company there's so much you can do to prepare but you got to be willing to put in the time to self educate watching podcasts listening to interviews sure. looking at YouTube videos reading earnings reports whatever it's all out there for the taking right and so. That's, it seems to me that's the other side of that coin you, you would try to uncover, let's say, in an interview process. I haven't hired anybody in, in a while, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, in the early days of digital, I got in digital when I was in the leagues in the 1990s when it was new, and, and I got really into it and, and got some responsibility. And I had to hire people, and no one had digital experience. And the number one thing I look for, other than uh, teachability, to your point, was there was how hungry they were to learn about this new stuff yeah and when the fun- people ask me like how do you know about this i said well i've been doing my homework i've been reading all this stuff i've been talking yeah, and we people. can read like the I
0: practical can. experience especially on social media means that you and me are dinosaurs and the amount of time it will take us to put up a reel um is going to be you know exponentially greater than a 21 year old who probably right. isn't even well maybe they're probably on tiktok now but um you know they've been doing that in tiktok and snapchat their whole life and that um, expertise is something that you know, you'd know you be looking to hire. So as long as they know that, that that is something that they have to offer and then are willing to learn the rest, um, yeah, that makes them incredibly hireable. You just were about to touch on something. When people come to me and they ask for help, the hardest thing is when they don't know what they want help with. They're right. like, well, I'm just getting a job and I would appreciate any connections you can make. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, no, that's a tough And one. I think I did that sometimes when I was young, because I was trying to be too nice, and I was afraid to ask for things. But the easiest way to have someone help you is to tell them what they need. And that's, you know, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, tell me what you need. Um, so uh, that's one thing I tell a lot of the folks that I mentor is, when you have these conversations, and a senior executive is giving you, you know, even a 15 minute window. You should be prepared to end that conversation with, well, I've looked at your LinkedIn account and I see that you have connections to these three people. Like, so make it very task oriented and then write the email for them and forward it to them. So all they have to do is copy paste it, right? Don't leave anything up to me or it will never get done um, if I don't know how to help you. And so that's one thing I would say is like, I mean, even now, like when I call someone, I'm very forthcoming immediately whether it's about media rights and monetization of said rights in APAC, I tell my buddy Will, dude, this is why I'm calling. And he doesn't, like, he wants to cut right to the chase also. And then for hiring, I think, you know, you're doing them a favor, but ultimately doing yourself the favor of making it really easy to help you.
2: Absolutely. That's, that's a really good pre- piece of practical advice. Thank you for that. Well, Hillary, that, that was a pleasure. Um, if anybody's wondering why Joe hasn't spoken up, <laughs> he had to actually drop <laughs> about 10 minutes ago to for a business meeting. Um, but really appreciate you spending time with us. What a great story. What a fascinating career. And obviously, it's uh, you're you're in the middle of it. So it's going to be really interesting to see where it goes uh, as you- I appreciate you, you ad- saying that ad- I'm in the middle advance. of it. Well, you are. I mean, unlike Don Lemon, I think you're in your prime. <laughs> you
0: are, <so. laughs> um, um, I feel that I'm in my prime. I'm well, no, I mean, you've made, you've
2: made so many points where I'm kind of smiling to myself thinking- yeah, you do get better at this stuff when you get older. It's just, it just a fact. You get you get more insight. You get a little bit more wisdom, shall we say. You definitely get better at perspective, and perspective is so key, in my opinion, in business right now. Because as you said, there's a lot of business at circa 2023 is an intersection of a lot of things going on in our world. It's not just like right. the old yeah, days yeah. of business.
0: And, and been, yeah,
2: and and, and I, I just I just do feel like you get a little bit more sensitive you you get more, well, it's no need to go on a, a rant about uh, how I feel about it. But yeah, look, you you got a ton to offer. So it'll be interesting to see where you decide to go with it. Um, but on behalf of Joe, on behalf of the program, thank you, Hillary, for spending so much time. Um, our last question, of course, would be where can people find you if, they, if you want people to find you? If you don't want to answer, that's cool. I,
0: you know, it's interesting. I actually thought like in this in-between time, should I dive more into Twitter? But to be honest with you, I just got a new phone and I didn't even download Twitter yet. Ooh, um, that's a of, statement, Elon. So it's funny that, <laughs> and it's not like I was ever some influencer on Twitter. Right. I always say the reason I have been good at my job my whole career is because I have zero desire to see my name in headlights. I don't need to be the you know right. headliner at any events. And I'm certainly never going to be caught on camera unless I'm right. like so far in the background that I'm blurry.
1: Right. Um,
0: and that's what makes me good at my job is no. like, I'm not, I wasn't trying to, become famous alongside my clients um and so they any ideas I have or wisdom or good one-liners they get it I give it to them um so I have not done a great job of building my own brand over the years and I don't know I kind of think that's my secret weapon it's gonna but say it's refreshing
2: kinda. because the, the amount of humble bragging that we see on LinkedIn and social media is kind of off the charts at this point so this I
0: don't and I'm terrible at it. Right. I would. We have so many beautiful stories, especially working with Stefan and some of the gender equity and nonprofit cause work I've done. Um, now in the NIL space, man, if I had NIL athletes, I would be telling their stories left, right, and center. So hopefully you will see me more active on those platforms. But um, I don't know. I feel like I'm always just so busy with the job. I don't have time to run my own PR campaign because I'm focused on the project or the client's PR com strategy. I'm not very good at even taking those and putting them on my own platform. All right, how about
2: we say this: if anybody wants to find Hillary, and Twitter, we wish you but... luck. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not even going to tell you how we spell her name, Hillary Wad. Uh, you figure it out, audience. Uh, anyway, Hillary, thank you so much. It's hard to get, right? Yeah, exactly. I love it. It's very refreshing, Hillary. <laughs> it's it's a it's a good approach. I think I may may join you in that regard. Um, Cindy, thank you for producing. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you on the next episode.
0: Thank you guys so much. Have a great one.